Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Stop punishing yourself with bland, chalky protein shakes and fuel your fitness with the best protein in the game at GNC. We've got the hottest brands and flavors that legit taste like cookies, your favorite cereal, indulgent desserts, and more. It's on at GNC. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Please, dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch, Dispatch Media. I'm really thinking I need a new intro because I put exactly about 30 seconds of thought into this a couple of years, a few years ago, and, and now I feel like I'm stuck with it. It's sort of like the the literally like 12 minutes of time that rich larry and i spent coming up with the name g file and i've been stuck with it now for like 25 years but um so a little backstory before we get to our guests although some of you have probably already figured out who it is from the laughter in the background um we were supposed to talk to francis fukuyama today i was very much looking forward to that but then we realized that they were expecting us to hold the conversation until his book came out which normally i would be fine with but I needed a podcast for today, and since we were probably talking about Ukraine stuff, waiting like six weeks for the book to come out would probably date the conversation impermissibly. So I still desperately wanted to talk about Hegel and the philosopher, the revisionist Marxist Hegelian philosopher Kojev, who plays such a big role in uh, End of History and The Last Man. <laughs> and so at the last second, I got the only other guy I knew who could talk about this stuff, Christopher Starwalt. Um, of the American Enterprise Institute and the Dispatch, and who is also more fairly, because I'm not going to make him talk about Hegel. Um, uh, <laughs> he is in many ways, uh, he's now officially, I think his official title for this podcast is not just merely friend of the podcast, for this podcast has many friends. It is the official break glass in case of emergency guest. So with that Chris Starwalt, welcome back for the umpteenth time to the 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 remnant thing. Well, I, I got I got to tell you, um, I'm having some remnant nostalgia waves today mm -hmm. because I'm in the studio where I've made my first remnant appearance here at the American Enterprise Institute. And when I came in, I was I was I was but a simple country pundit, uh, and you turned my head with unlimited free sparkling water mm -hmm. uh, here in the lovely confines of the American Enterprise Institute, where I could have scarcely imagined that I would one day uh, get to work. And today, and I have an omelet here in front of me that was prepared for me. And here's the, let me tell you the best thing about this omelet. It is the last omelet that was served today. And you know who didn't get this omelet? Michael Strain. And Michael Strain, our friend, walked in to get an omelet, excitement on his face, and I got to be the one to tell him, no, Michael, not today. I, and I, look, I got to tell you, disappointed Michael Strain face is one of my favorite faces. Oh, it, it's magic. I mean, I, it's like, it's pretty much the adult version of a kid walking in to see all his Christmas presents 
and finding his Christmas pony slumped over dead at the base of the tree. <laughs> it's just fantastic. Yes, exa- exactly. And it speaks to his fundamental decency and, and, and good nature. Uh, but it, as, I, as I told him, all day I'll know that I got the omelet that you didn't, Michael. That's right. That's right. Um, and uh, so I'm sorry I can't be there in person with you. You are my, my colleague just down the hall from me at the American Enterprise Institute. But um, I got to say, Big fan of Robert Doerr, our fearless leader at the American Enterprise here, Institute. Here. But, uh, and this is like, you know, if this is the worst thing, if this is the worst leadership fail that you can attribute to a new president of the American Enterprise Institute, it's, it's actually high praise. But his re- just adamant failure, abject failure, failure you can see from space to restock our fridges with free fresca is... Oh, brother. Oh, brother, let me tell you. The fresca's, it's in the house. No. The fresca's back. We've fresca's got the fresca. back. Fresca's back, and it's chilly. I had one yesterday evening. In the evening, I was working late last night, and I thought, wouldn't a fresca be nice? And there it was for me, a delicious grapefruit, low-calorie beverage. I'll tell you, fresca should advertise on The Remnant, because I would knock that stuff out of the park. Um, it is delicious. Huge fresca fan. Um, and <laughs> right now, all of the sort of Michael Anton sort of, oh, the skinny tie Beltway elite think tankers, uh, people are furious that they're listening to us talk about free omelets and uh, free fresca. But suck it. All right, suck it. So, um, where to begin? Um, Here's an interesting place to start. Okay. I think you probably heard uh, me say this in either in person or on this podcast. uh, Carry the one like three thousand times. when I was criticizing conservatives for embracing everything that Donald Trump did, I would often say, think about the next time there's a Democratic president, and what can you criticize that president for without being accused of hypocrisy? And I, there were all sorts of things I had in mind about that, extramarital affairs, uh, you know, uh, uh, politicizing things that shouldn't be politicized. I Nightmare did, ethics. Yeah, yeah, lots of ethics stuff. I did not have on my bingo card at the time... Um, Presidents saying absolutely bonkers things that the staff then has to clean up. And look, the analogies between Trump and Biden have many asterisks and caveats and all of that kind of stuff. But Biden's got a, I, I think it's a legitimate issue, and I'm sick of hearing from people saying it's not, that his mouth gets him and the administration and the country into trouble. What what fair minded person could say that his blabber is not problem like they know the White House definitely knows yeah. of his problematic blabber. And I can imagine that Jen Psaki collapsed into dark matter as she saw Joe Biden go off prompter in Poland, like, well, I got a good audience. I feel like I'm on a roll here. Let's let's swing for it. Joe Biden, you know, I was thinking about this in those uh wretched confirmation hearings. Joe Biden was one of the innovators of wretched confirmation hearings, exactly. right? Yeah. He, 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 Joe Biden has been an innovator of saying more than needs to be said for much, much of his career, including challenging people to push up battles or uh, arguing about IQ scores with Iowans. He has he he knows how to screw it up and they know he knows how to screw it up. And I bet they were just sick when he went off prompter. Yeah, there's a. Again, the differences between Trump and Biden, there are many and all that kind of stuff. And and I, I think Biden is a, a, a 
is a person of much better character than, than mm-hmm, Donald Trump. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, many of his gaffes are coming from a, a fairly decent place. Some of them yeah. are not, but you know, whatever. The commonality between the two is that you could see it with Trump, where he he really didn't think he was doing anything special until he left the text. Right? Yes. He he was like because he wanted the credit for entertaining the crowd, not the speechwriters to get the credit. So he would leave the text and do some riffs on his own. And, you know, and he would hold his fingers up as he talked because that was a tell that he was leaving the text. And um, I think Biden has the same thing. There's this arrogance that, like, I want the credit for um, saying the pretty words, saying the important stuff that gets news. Um, The audience is here for me, not for the text. Exactly. And they let that get the better of them because, I mean, like, there's no other explanation, you know, I mean, I, I do like the argumento ad Irish uh, that this was just because I, Biden's an Irish dude that he says this stuff. But it, yeah, it, it's I, a real problem, right? I mean, on, on St. Patrick's Day for the dispatch uh, in my Steyerwaltisms newsletter. Uh, subscribe uh, now. Subscribe now. Act now. And it comes with a free Cinnabon. Um, the, I, I pointed out that there's a lot of ways to understand Joe Biden. But one of the best ways to understand Joe Biden is as a Irish politician. Mm-hmm. He's not a Boston politician. Uh, but when we think of guys like um, Daly and the Dailies in Chicago, when we think about uh, who else, let's see, when we think about um, Al Smith, there's an ancient tradition of Blarney-filled, loquacious, um, garrulous, charming kind of guys. And, and Biden definitely sees himself in that mold. It's funny for us because I think Joe Biden thinks of himself as a sort of a Bill Clinton like charmer mm-hmm. that he is he's got the gift of gab and despite uh, and not despite a despite but in in fact because he overcame his stutter that he feels like he is something special what Biden doesn't get is that it's excruciating watching him talk because you know that he's struggling and you know that it's uh, I think you were the one who described it as watching a drunk try to park his car on an icy street, <laughs> just banging into everything and can't get into the spot. And I think that's I think Biden doesn't I think he lacks self-reference on his gifts as an orator as an is an understatement. Well, it's funny because like and I don't remember saying that, but it sounds like me. So maybe it was uh, Bush um, when he talked you got this feeling like you know the feeling when you're walking in the dark you're going down a flight of stairs in the dark it's like check the front mm-hmm. door or whatever and you miss yes. a step bang and your lizard brain thinks dear god i've just fallen off a cliff right. to my death right because you're just, you're just and it's that it's that moment of panic that there must be a good german word for uh that um you used to feel and then bush would stick the landing and finish the sentence and it'll all be fine that but you get this feeling because there are these these pauses that would make the audience nervous um (laughs) yes but he would never you were never scared he was going to you know start saying i have armadillos in my trousers right and the fear when you're listening to to biden is that he could really say something that either forces the administration to spend the next 48 hours cleaning up a misstatement or worse. And this is the point of my LA, LA times column this week where, because the president said it and can't walk it back, it becomes policy. Yep. And, uh, you know, and like, so the, the calling Putin a war criminal, um, 
Chuck Todd seems to think that that was planned. I don't think it was. I think Biden was responding off to the war cuff crimes. to a yep. shouted yep. question. Yep. Yep. And he says, oh, of course, I think he's committed war crimes. And and until then, the administration had been very careful not to say that Putin was guilty of war crimes. And then all of a sudden, Blinken says, I agree. He's a war criminal, blah, 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 blah. And that has huge policy ramifications. And I'm not opposed to treating him like a war criminal because he's obviously, obviously is one. I just want the policy of how you're going to do that to not rest on, you know, whether he had too much coffee in the morning or not. So, you know, Biden is of all of the presidential comparisons that you can make to Biden. One of them is Harry Truman. Right. So mm-hmm. Biden is in his own way an accidental president. Um, he was put on the ticket in 2008 for some very base political reasons, right, uh, to uh, appeal to the kind of voters who shunned Barack Obama in favor of Hillary Clinton in the 2008 presidential primaries. White dudes and white dudes from places like Pennsylvania. And Biden was uh, that. And he the only reason it, it had had Donald had the Republicans nominated someone other than Donald Trump. The Democrats never would have picked Joe Biden ever, ever in a million years. Uh, but right. he was the closest weapon to hand, and he seemed to fit those things, right? He's going to fight back for these blue-collar, working-class whites that were everybody's obsession in 2020. Wrongly, but whatever. Um, anyway, I, I think Biden – here's how Biden – wants to be. He wants to be like Truman, which is a guy that nobody really ever thought was going to get there, uh, who ends up growing in the office and becoming a da 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 and and all and it all works out. And then he wins he wins a, another term and goes down as a success story. What Biden is doing right now is sucking really, really hard. <laughs> and uh, I looked at in the most recent Wall Street Journal, or I'm, I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal left that poll, uh, but the NBC News poll that's still done by the great Bill McInturf on the one hand and then uh, the Hart research on the other hand uh, for a good bipartisan split. You look at the favorability numbers on Biden and he's down to 37 percent favorability. What you could have Mm -hmm. said about Joe Biden before was that he was more popular than his policies or governance, that people liked him 55, 56 percent favorability, even as his job approval numbers were at 45. Now, his favorability numbers are below his job approval numbers. And for a guy that is who won on the basis of character and personality, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, so it was interesting. Yesterday, I, I, I confess I barely read it because I thought it was a silly thing. But Politico had a story on could Trump blow it, blow I the midterms that. for the yeah, Republicans? Yeah, yeah. And of course, that got a lot of coverage on MSNBC. You know, it was like, you know, here's this, you know, there, you know, there may actually be a huge stockpile of of food supplies for starving yes. people kind of vibe. Exactly. To it, you know? um, uh, I, I got to put more coins in my coin operated. No, but it, it, it was like tell, but, telling uh, people who are dying of thirst in the desert. I heard there is a giant oasis just two hills away. Oasis, you say, as they start running off into the sand. <laughs> Actually, now that we're now that we're doing this, um, they made a made for TV movie um, about the USS Indianapolis. Do you oh, ever see boy. it? It's no, a, but that's not tough. a yeah. not a feel good story. Right. Um, and for those who don't know, USS Indianapolis delivered the atomic bomb and then um on its way back got hit 
and sunk and uh, and like 1100 people going on the water actually they tell the story a little bit in jaws right that's where quinn right. had his experience with and like 400 Dead people eyes. got got eaten a doll's by, eyes that's right that's where quinn's describing tom cotton and um <laughs> um Hey-o. Uh no, I, I've been saying that about Tom Cotton for a while. It's like I like I actually have a lot of respect for Tom Cotton for being able to be disciplined and, and yeah. whatnot. But like you look that guy in the eye, and I'm always like, he's got a doll's eyes. Start swimming. Eyes. Yeah, start you're gonna need a bigger boat. <laughs> um but anyway, in, in the movie, apparently this is a true story. People like day two from dehydration and exhaustion, um, a rumor spread that if you swam 10 feet below the surface, the ocean became fresh water. Oh boy. Um, and, uh, that's what that political piece felt like to me. <laughs> well, you, you know, the, the a midterm election cycle goes like this. There is the first, the false, the false hope of the incumbent party. You know what? This one may be different said, I'm sure a political piece in, you know, summer of last year. You know, right. actually, this may, as, and you could have said easily written the piece and gotten a lot of clicks for it at Politico. If you would have written a piece in May of last year that said, actually, Biden may beat the old midterm curse and and really do it. And then the Virginia election happened and then they all changed their pants and then they came back with fresh pants on and said, I think we have a real problem here and that the thing is going to happen now at that moment. The out party did what the out party usually does and becomes wildly overconfident. <laughs> At that moment, <laughs> Republicans were like, you mean we're going to win no matter what? Well, can we uh, can we shoot Liz Cheney out of a cannon into the sun? Uh, can we uh, talk about uh, can uh, I love Rick? Rick Scott is my favorite. He in an interview with the Associated Press about how speaking of sucking, uh, how <laughs> Rick Scott's rollout of his. I forget what he calls it, but basically a contract with America that he wants to put forward as the head of the Republican Senate Election Committee. And he put this thing forward and in the interview, and it's not going well, and in the interview, he compared himself to Ulysses S. Grant at Vicksburg <laughs> and said, they all said that Grant was going to lose at Vicksburg. I see myself like that, that I've been underestimated as an outsider and I'm going to triumph. And then he went on to say that he was open to challenging Mitch McConnell for Senate leader. And I'm like, bro, it's not helping. You're not making it better. So that was reflective, though, of Republican overconfidence that, like, we can't help but win, they thought. Now we're going through the next phase, predictably, which is Democrats re revive glimmer of hope. Hey, you know, and this tr and look, the political premise is correct. Donald Trump is the single greatest liability that the Republicans have. You know who's a, popu a less popular politician than Joe Biden? Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. Only by a point in the uh, NBC News poll, but he is Donald Trump is demonstrably a, a greater liability than Joe Biden is. But he just doesn't have as much salience if, as he did in Virginia, he stays out. Mm -hmm. And it's true that he could ruin Georgia. He's trying his very hardest to ruin Georgia for Republicans. Uh, and he has had negative effects in primaries across the country. We look to Arizona. We look to other places. But Donald, you know, Donald Trump, and this is just made up. This is just bar talk, as my mother would have said. Uh, but let's say Donald Trump's worth eight seats in the House for Democrats. They'd At this point, they'd still lose 
28 seed. <laughs> you know, they'd right, still right. lose. They'd still they'd still get their Heinies hit. So it's it's whatever. Yeah. So it's funny. I know this is just my undisciplined podcast host skills. I had brought up that Politico piece to say then like the next day to like atone for it. They came out with um, uh, a more sober eyed piece, which the headline is a, a quote. We've got to stop fooling ourselves. <laughs> Enthusiasm gap keeps getting worse for Dems. Um, and the subhead is the last time the voter enthusiasm deficit was this wide. Democrats lost more than 60 seats in the House. Um, I don't think th- I don't think that's the size of the loss for no, either, but. Be- because uh, the Republicans got a surprise pickup of seats. So the way the midterm is supposed to happen is that the quadrant. So the in the 2018 midterm, Democrat, the, your, the comparison for 2022 is not. 2020, it's 2018. Right. So in 2018, Democrats won a bunch of seats they shouldn't have won, right? That they that that had so uh, to really make it sexy, the partisan vote index for these districts, the PVI score, which is the Cook report came up with, uh, peace be upon it, uh, where it it gives you the the basically the net partisanship of the district. And Democrats were winning in R plus five, R plus six, R plus seven districts that they didn't really have a right to, but they were winning because Trump was so unpopular and people were so freaked out by the weirdo Republicans. The Republicans did better in 2020 than everybody, including me, expected. They hmm. better than they expected uh, and picked and got some of those seats back. So there's a little uh, that that sort of that was a little bit of cash for clunkers, but I still think they're on track to win. Republicans should still be on track to win more than 30 seats. So how do you think um, there's a lot of um, chatter about this? How do you think Trump's endorsed candidates are going to go? I don't know, Jonah. I'm more focused on the greatest press release of all time where Donald Trump said that a lot of people are asking about it. So he's going to come right out and say it. Yes, he got a hole in one while playing <laughs> golf with Ernie Els. And he even had description in it. And for a moment, just a moment, I missed Donald Trump for just a brief, <laughs> for the briefest of moments. I was like, that dude, it was funny. He did. He he was funny. But um, uh, so Georgia is the most important, has shaped up to be the most important primary. And um, Herschel Walker it would not be who I would have picked for Republicans in Georgia because I would have just picked a a taupe human. Just, and I don't mean that by their skin tone. I mean it by boring, boring. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would have been like, we need a Ford Taurus down here, boys. We need a real, like, just like, who is a, who is a generic Republican member of Congress that we can put in, a member of the House we can put in here, stand for Senate? Because Raphael Warnock's the easiest Democrat to beat. He is playing way, way, way out of position. He is not, ju- John Ossoff is trying to be a moderate Democrat in a Republican state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Raphael Warnock is a very liberal Democrat in a Republican state in a bad year for Democrats. So he's toast. And as long as Herschel Walker can keep it on the road, it should be fine. Uh, but I wouldn't have picked a first-time candidate. Is That's a long way of saying that. Mm-hmm. The governor's race has turned out to be the, the measure by which Trump is going to be taken. Um, it's an unforced, unnecessary primary. Uh, Stacey Abrams, the presumptive Democratic nominee, has lots of money, and she has demonstrated that she can get lots of votes. Now, this is a much tougher Democratic year, but the last thing that you would do 
for Georgia governor this year would be have a nasty primary fight <laughs> with the incumbent. And Trump has, and by the way, I did not realize what a bad candidate Purdue was. Mm-hmm. I, I had underappreciated how awful he was as a candidate until I watched him fumbling around with all of this stolen election stuff and just he can't he can't hit it right. He's not a good candidate and voters so far have have responded accordingly and are sticking with Kemp. But the Kemp Purdue primary for Georgia governor has turned into the litmus test because it's the cleanest one. Mm-hmm. You know, in Ohio, everybody, every Senate candidate says that they're the Trumpiest, right? Um, in Arizona, like in the other races, it's not as clear. In Georgia, there is one anti-Trump candidate and there is one Trump candidate and they're and they're fighting. And frankly, if Kemp loses, the Republicans are in big, big trouble. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean for the Georgia governorship. And that's why you see the Republican Governors Association coming in with money, which is very unusual for them to, to get into a primary. But the Republicans know if Brian Kemp goes down, all of the gutless wonders in the GOP that had been exploring the idea of having scruples again mm-hmm. will run right back behind Donald Trump's skirts and say, I was with you all along. I loved you the whole time. Um, and. As Harvest Prue did a very nice piece on the Ohio primary. She certainly did. Uh, today. Um, do you have an explanation for why, say, J.D. Vance is not getting traction? I mean, like, it, it, it's a very strange thing. I know you know Ohio a, a bit, uh, but, like, throughout most of the Trump presidency, Ohio was a lagging indicator, right? Because it had, it had Kasich, it had Portman, its politics were much less gonzo than a lot of other states. Yeah. And now it seems to be like making up for lost time. Um, so so Ohio also, you know, I, I, I'll put it, Ohio also had Jim Jordan. Uh, that's true. That's fair. Ohio has always had a weird streak in it politically. Uh, and the they the the Taft line is long ago lost, but the Ohio as home for Mister Conservative is is a, is an ancient concept. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I I think J D Vance's problem is he seems like a giant phony. Mm-hmm. I think I don't think it's the policies, and it almost never is the. Po- I would just remind everyone, it's almost never the policies in these primaries. It's personality. Who do you like? Who is the person that you think you can trust more than the other people? Um, and that's why Kemp is winning in Georgia. Um, and that's why Vance is losing in Ohio. Uh, when you're dealing with Mandel, you, you here have talked about kayfabe many times, mm-hmm. uh, the wrestling, the, the wrestler's code of good guys and bad guys of heels and blah, 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 blah. Well, you're not going to, you're not going to outcommit to the bit more than Josh Mandel. Right, mm-hmm. it, who's burning coronavirus masks and telling people to buy Bitcoin in their in their nuclear bunkers? Uh, he has taken the maximalist position on being crazy, and JD Vance finds himself as a guy who makes now an unconvincing, credible person and an unconvincing MAGA maniac. So I think he just. I here's the thing: voters can smell it. On you, right? When you come in and you're like, well, here's what I'm going to, and this is the Ted Cruz, Elizabeth Warren phenomenon. Mm -hmm. I'm a smart person and I'm going to figure out what I think these dummies want. 
and then I'm going to give it to them hard. <laughs> I'm going to drop it. I'm going to drop it on them like a sack of wet cement, and they're going to go for it because they can't help themselves. And then they find out that they may be very smart themselves, but the other people are not nearly as dumb as mm-hmm. they had expected. And that's how you end up with J.D. Vance. And that's how you end up with Ted Cruz begging for forgiveness on Tucker Carlson's show. <laughs> like, it's that's how it goes. So speaking of dumb, uh, unbeknownst to me while I was writing my uh, my G-File on, among other things, Madison Cawthorn, apparently Madison Cawthorn was. By the way, sir, by the way, I must say. That was uh, a vintage chief file. I read Thank it. You, I read it whilst eating a giant steak last night, and it it satisfied both satisfied. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you. I uh, um, I've been getting feedback from people that I'm doing too much intellectual thumbsuckery, and I need to go back to writing funny things. And so I I tried to split the. I, I hate taking direction, so I tried to uh, <laughs> cut cut the baby in half. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, uh, Madison Cawthorn apparently has now apologized and said he was exaggerating or not telling the truth or something. But then apparently Roger Stone today came out and yeah. said that he talked to Madison Cawthorn and said that Cawthorn says that he is not in fact taking back the drug fueled so orgy good. kind of thing. I guess the, I mean, the question that you keep seeing on Twitter, which I, I know you don't go to Twitter because you don't, for the same reasons that you don't open the Ark of the Covenant. Right. But exactly. um, Face melting. what, you know, I have my theories, but what is your theory about why this idiocy is more problematic for Republicans than uh, going to white supremacist conferences or, you know, Jewish space? I mean, go down a long list of, you know, of, <laughs> Marjorie of, Taylor Greenian. Yes. Yeah. Anti-Semitic conspiracy theory, racist stuff that doesn't get condemned. But this gets a trip to the woodshed. Well, first of all, I think the idea of members of members of Congress engaged in drug fueled uh, orgies is too horrifying to think about. (laughs) So when you see the people and you think about who the cast of characters could be for a Republican congressional orgy and, you know, you're going to need some of the body wash that you sell uh, here sometimes uh, on the remnant because you're going to be super skeeved out. Well, in particular, because. He, in his own explanation, carved out the handful of young people, right? Yeah. So he wasn't talking about like yeah, it wasn't a hot somebody it, hot. It was you know they were like super gross. Yeah, whoever the female equivalent of Mike Gallagher is, or Mike, you know, like young guys in good shape kind of thing. He said sixty and seventy year old Republicans. More power. His, I got. I got to say, I wish it was true because more power to him, right? If you're seventy and you're still up for a drug fueled or so I'm, to speak, I'm forty. Quite so. Well, the better living through chemistry. I'm forty seven and I'm exhausted thinking about it. I can't yeah. even imagine. I. But here, here's what I know. It, um, the great Samantha Goldstein found my research assistant found for my book a wonderful stat, which was a study of. Twitter interactions for uh, 35 or 38 politicians. This mark, this research firm took 38 politicians or whatever and said, let's see how many Twitter interactions take place about stories about these individuals. And I will tell you that there was an inverse correlation between effectiveness and mentions. So mm-hmm. at the very top of the list, you know, Cru- Ted Cruz, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, 
Marjorie Taylor Greene, like all of the usual suspects are at the top. And you know who is the the least mentioned the, among the least mentioned members of Congress? Hmm. Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, the most influential members of the United States Senate. And th- the inverse correlation is easily understood because this is the Matt Gates effect. What, what did he say? If you're not on TV, you're not governing. Right. Uh, and I think the Madison Cawthorn phenomenon is he we once upon a time knew that when you were new in Congress, you did not matter. You were a backbencher. You were relegate. You were nothing. Right. The Marjorie, the, the funny part about all of what gets discussed and this is Frenchy and nut picking and this is all of that. All of that goes into it. But the net effect is empty barrels make the most noise. These people aren't doing anything and should be mm-hmm. ignored. Right. Madison Cawthorn deserves to be ignored because he has never accomplished anything. Ted Cruz, frankly, hasn't accomplished anything. He's been mm-hmm. in, he's he's been reelected to the Senate and his record of achievement is some post office naming and a bunch of nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's no easy way to reconnect achievement with celebrity in politics, uh, if that ever was the case. But we are badly disconnected between those two things. Yeah. So, um Specifically on the, the – the, I mean, I agree with all that. On the Cawthorn thing in partic- and the McCarthy woodshed oh, yeah. thing, you know, during the um, uh, the Jackson hearings, um, mm-hmm. Judge Jackson hearings, there were a bunch of people who insisted that Josh Hawley's, you know, uh, child sex offender – questioning was pandering to QAnon and I I don't really buy that. I mean that might have been I mean he'd take it. Yeah, exactly. I mean it's like <laughs> like if his aide said, "Oh, and by the way, this will help you with QAnon." He'd be like, right. "Great." But I, I don't think it was his primary motivation um like fueling moral panic stuff. That's as old is, as yeah. It's it's very old and it's it's and it's very old on both sides and there are different flavors of it on both sides, but you know um you know, at the same time, the I think the problem with the what Cawthorn was saying about the orgy stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that he wasn't talking about the egg council or the Bildenbergers mm-hmm. or the the Rothschilds or the the Council on Foreign Relations or the guys at Bohemian Grove. Um, or the stonecutters, he was talking about the GOP. Right. Right. And so you can talk about, you can do all sorts of stuff about conspiracy theories and about racism and about all sorts of belated, stuff. Belated discoveries of white nationalists after you talk to the group. Like, oh, they seemed really nice. And right. oh, oh, they're white nationalists. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, but like when you say that it's that the the sort of QAnon adjacent kind of Mm-hmm. Eyes wide shut stuff mm-hmm. is actually going on among Republicans. Mm-hmm. Uh, it activates a whole bunch of people who think, see, you know, this is why they got, you know, this is why, you know, uh, the establishment turned on Trump because he was going to expose, and it creates direct problems for Republicans in ways, alas, that racism and other kinds of crazy don't. Um, I mean, I yes. can't think of another explanation for it. Well, yes, and it's yes and. And the and is, remember in 2006, speaking of midterm misplaced uh, or midterm misapprehensions, in 2006, Republicans were like, you know, it's not going to be great, 
But we think people are still mostly on our side about Iraq. And we think that, like, we're, I think there's a way through this to hold the majority, blah, 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 said Republicans to me at the time. And I thought, no, I think you're going to lose. I think you're going to lose. But they were like, maybe it's okay. And then what happened? The uh, congressional, the the House aide, or not the aides, the interns, um, the pages, yes, Uh the, the House page scandal with Mark Foley mm-hmm. and the gross, I believe, blackberrying gross things to people. There, There's a dated uh, reference. But the moral indignation of, of voters in the face of sexual grotesqueries inside the Congress is a potent one. Mm-hmm. And among, as you describe them, QAnon adjacent, but just among people who even I think it goes farther beyond that. If there is a perception that the Republicans are a bunch of decadent creepos and not the, you know, I'll put it this way. Madison Cawthorn was trying to build his brand at the expense of his fellow Republicans. Right. And he was doing so on an issue that is super poisonous for people like Kevin McCarthy, right? If the if the rap on Republicans is that they're perverts and partiers and whatever, that's a lot worse for Republicans than Democrats because the Republican base is far more hard on those questions, unless you're Donald Trump, a- asterisk, unless you're Donald mm-hmm. Trump, uh, Stormy Daniels, whatever, people say things. Um, unless you're Donald Trump, the Republican base is much harder on that. So Cawthorn was, is creating a much greater peril. Yeah. And I, I just, and I, I love the idea of Cawthorn playing the role of the morally upstanding citizen, disgusted by the right. antics of the Mr. establishment. Smith. Yeah. yeah, which is just uh, not him. A, a person um, a, a, you you identified his use of the phrase "key bump," uh, which was very telling uh, for the use of cocaine, um, but also was. I think he has watched too many movies because the idea that these, you know, Stonian, I mean, I would believe almost anything that was said of Roger Stone. Sure. Um, but the idea that there are members of Congress who are like, hey, kid, you want to join us for a big sex party later with drugs? <laughs> I don't know, mister. That sounds pretty dangerous to me. I'm going to go <laughs> home and read my Bible. No, thank you. Like, come on. That's not how that goes. Yeah, there's a, there's a certain Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids, <laughs> exactly. aspect to this whole exactly. image. Rock band, yes. Um, uh, and by the way, so a, a friend of mine sent me this story this morning um, or late last night. The New York Post has a story, and we have we have people with young listeners yeah. in the car, so I try to keep this as a little I appreciate on the tasteful that. side. Right. But um, there's a story in the uh, New York Post about a guy who injected Uh-oh. cocaine Uh-oh. into uh, a part of your body that uh, some people at some networks got fired for taking pictures of and sending to other people. And um, Mr. Happy. Yeah. Uh, Richard photographs. <laughs> um, and um, uh, anyway, so he injected cocaine straight into uh, John Thomas and it turned black and fell off. And my friend texted me and said, this is why you key bump. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Madison. This is, this is, you know, think about it. It's better than injecting it into the Schwanzstucker. So this is good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know, practice, you know, enjoy responsibly as the beer ads say. Um, 
do we have anything that you i mean i just did a whole glop with pod and and rob long about the oscar stuff and all of that is there anything more to say about all that i mean i the only the only thing i will i will say is uh taking these people seriously is always a mistake yeah. taking will smith yeah look we see it in politics people get so deep in the bubble that you know uh if Real politicians, good politicians, good celebrities, good whatever, have people who they who hold them accountable. You and I, every human being needs an accountability stru- a structure. Uh, this is why people join churches. This is why people – this is like you have to have it so that people can call you on your stuff. And you can rise to a certain level in Hollywood where nobody has called your stuff in so long that you just – you're used to – doing things like walking up on stage and slapping a person uh, and not being arrested because the correct thing, of course, to have happened would have been that Will Smith would have been arrested and that sure. he w- that he would have been taken to jail and mm-hmm. released on his own recognizance because it's a minor offense. Yeah. Uh, but that is, of course, what should have happened. But instead, America got to see yet again that we have a couple or a few different systems of law for different people in different places. And I think that's a bummer. But... Also, speaking of John, so he, in his most recent appearance on The Remnant, likened himself to um, uh, Paul Lind, Paul Mm -hmm. Lind, uh, who played the brother-in-law on Bewitched. Yeah, fair enough. Or or whatever. And that he he felt that his role on The Remnant was as uh, the comedic. Uh, as you called him a fan favorite, uh-huh. uh, who showed up, uh, and I thought, well, if he is that, then what am I, right? If I am the break glass, in case of emergency break glass guest, uh-huh. if he is Paul Lind, who am I? All I could come up with was Alan Hale Jr. I was uh, going to ask you about Alan Hale Jr. So, like, before you go any further, yeah. uh, uh, we are using the software called Riverside to record this podcast, and we have video, and you have to, it's like, it's just like Zoom, but better. Um, and you type in your name, and uh, Mr. Starwalt has typed in the name Alan Hale Jr., and I was going to give Ryan Brown um, a quiz to ask him if he knew who Alan Hale Jr. was. Um, I'd ask the audience to say, can anyone in the audience answer, but the space-time continuum doesn't make that a very But right now, so. just pause and, you know, you know, if you know the answer in, as you're riding in the car, raise your hand, just one yeah. hand, uh, and that Alan Hale Jr. was the skipper yes. from Gilligan's Island. Yes, that's right. He was also the proprietor of Alan Hale Jr.'s Lobster Pot on La Cienega Boulevard in nice. Los Angeles, California for another 30 years or whatever after that, in which he would come out in the skipper hat. Uh, and or not in the skipper hat, uh, and say hi to the folks. And you could go down on La Cienega Boulevard to Alan Hale's Lobster Pot uh, and enjoy some seafood uh, with the skipper. And I think that is the role that I want to play for you. I want to be your lobster pot. Whenever you just need uh, a satisfying hush puppy uh, and some some crab claws, I'm here for you. So uh, Alan Hale's father, yeah, was yes. Alan Hale Jr. I mean, senior, senior, right? Or just Alan Hale, yep. who was in many, many uh, a movie from an earlier era. Um, but uh, I want to know, can you tell me what the Skipper's actual name was in the Gil- oh, in Gilligan's boy. Island? Mm. I am sad to say two things. That once I did actually know, which uh-huh. speaks to 
my uh, the social problems I, I experienced as a younger person because I was watching Gilligan's Island reruns instead of talking to real live girls. Uh, and that I'm also ashamed to say that now I'm old enough that I've forgotten. Please do tell us. His name was Captain Jonas Grumby. That's a fantastic name. Isn't that fantastic? That's like a whaler. Like, yeah, and there I will confess, she is. I will confess, I knew he had a fantastic name, but could not remember what it was, so I looked it up. Um, there she I, be, I, a hump like a snow hill. Tis Moby Dick, <laughs> and the gold coin is mine. <laughs> um, have you ever seen The Simpsons where, because uh, you're, 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 you sound very much like the the sea captain I, I. Uh, from the Simpsons, <laughs> where Homer sues because he's kicked out of the all, all you can eat buffet yes, before he yes pulls. yes and and Lionel Hutz the lawyer says this may be the greatest example of false advertising since my lawsuit against the never ending story <laughs> <laughs> well for, first of all R.I.P. Phil Hartman uh, R.I.P. for R.I.P. Phil Hartman forever the greatest um, but uh, do you know now my eldest man child has reached an age he has traveled through liking the simpsons into having a mature critical uh mm-hmm. appreciation of the simpsons and he says that only the first nine seasons of the simpsons are canonical that first nine se- seasons of the simpsons this was the uh conan o'brien era this was whatever mm-hmm. and then that the showrunner changed or whatever changed after that and everything after that is considered whatever awful well, I, I, I know the person you should ask is is Guy Denton, um, my RA, because uh, if he's ever done eating his breakfast at the American Enterprise Institute, <laughs> he's on to his second uh, Belgian waffle. Because he is a he, he's a Simpsonsophile at a level I am not, mm-hmm. and he has been doing a r- project for the Dispatch of interviewing, basically doing like an oral history of like every Simpsons writer ever. Oh my gosh! Um, yeah, and like. Every every week on the editorial meetings, which he's not part of, um, either Rachel Larimore or Michael Renault, uh, two of our editorial champs, yay, will say, "I'm really hoping to be done with the Denton piece this week um, because I think he turned in something like eleven thousand words." That sounds like God. Um, so have we, by the way, just I, before we leave the subject of guy, I want to ask again, is it possible that he is faking being English? I just want to make sure. Do you think there's any chance that he's really from like Boise and has pulled a fast one on you? Oh, I've had many of these kinds of thoughts to be sure. Cause he um, knows so much about America and knows so little about Britain. I feel yeah. like I've, I feel like he may be scamming us. Oh, I, I, let me put it this way. I still think he may be scamming mm-hmm, us, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but I do think he's from the UK. Okay, all right, that's, possible. Okay. <laughs> um, that's possible. I just don't know what the, I don't know what the long con is. In the, in um, the end, when I, when I hear him in a surreptitious phone call with a heavy Russian accent, I will say, "I knew it all of the yeah, time." There, there's there's something yeah, really sketchy, exactly. But he, uh, um, um, I do think the Simpsons got a lot worse, though. I think it but is, we had to, I just uh, we had to bring him over. F- like we had to do paperwork, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, to get him. He went so through the like, process. We, we, we check, check some of that stuff. Out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 th- I agree that the Simpsons has gotten worse. I, I, my problem is, is that, you know, I was a pretty. I mean, look, we were just talking about Gilligan's Island. Gilligan's yeah. Island was on for three years. Yeah, Star Trek was on for three years. The reason why you could like master the 
Star Trek or Gilligan's yes. Island ooze is that it was like it was in reruns constantly. Right, there were 90 episodes or 70 right. episodes. You know, and WPIX would, there were times when it was on, Star Trek was on twice a day or something. Yes, exactly. And you could absorb it, you know, and certainly Gilligan's Island was findable. At some point, you know, I mean, I started watching The Simpsons in my last year of high school, my first year of college. I mean, it was a long time ago. And um, and I'm talking about when it was a short thing for Tracy Ullman, right, right? before it became its own show. Like, in that time, I've had several jobs. I started a company. I had a kid. Right, you I entered college. <laughs> like, it is, like, at some point, you just, <laughs> yeah. It, it, so, it's, 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 yeah. so I stopped watching for, like, 12 years or something like that and it makes me feel very guilty because i still quote the simpsons all the time so i like hearing that you're a man child that this you know the the scion of the next generation exactly. is saying um yeah only the ones jonah goldberg has seen and can quote are canonical and the rest stink i'm just not sure i know that it's true i'm very prone to agree with it uh, it does sound like something comic book guy would say uh and, and i'm very prone to agree with comic book guy here because of course it lines up with uh nostalgia is uh, a lie uh nostalgia of course is the uh is missing something that never existed uh but uh i it lines up with my findings and i think how knowing when to wrap it up is a tough one shows like magnum pi missed it right where it was like oh if you would have just wrapped yeah. after season six you would have been okay but then you end up with and no offense to the murder she wrote magnum pi crossover uh you, 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 <laughs> you and let me tell you uh uh Higgins was hot, was hot for her. That was, he was definitely, he was definitely into Angela Lansbury. But anyway, <clears throat> I think knowing when to quit and knowing when to stop in TV is really hard because the money's there. And if you stop doing it, your friends lose their jobs, right? Tom Selleck didn't want to quit Magnum PI because that would have meant that TC and Rick and everybody, the ice pick, all of these people were making a living off the yeah. show. And uh, it's, it's, it's hard to turn it off, but I do think the Simpsons would have been better off if they'd have found a way to rap. Well, but the, like the added difficulty with the Simpsons is it's a cartoon. Yeah. So the actors don't That's age, right. right? I mean, like, um, they originally were going to make Modern Family a cartoon, mm -hmm. and then like basically the last minute they decided to make it, you know, with human beings instead. I think it was the right yeah. choice and all that. But like, I remember telling, you know, my kid because the first few seasons of Modern Family, it really isn't. It was very well written. Show. It was funny. Yeah, and and I was like, just wait, some of these kids are going to be really awkward teenagers, and they. And there's something that happens. I think Stranger Things made a mistake yes. by staying on those Agreed. kids. They should have just every season should have been something different. And um, and there's something about kids who are really good child actors who are really crappy teenager or adult actors, yes. voice change, body yeah. awkwardness, whatever. And um, like they would have ended The Simpsons 20 years ago if it had been a live action yes. thing. When Dan Katz and Lynetta, adult... uh really started to look like Homer, then they would have had to stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like, I mean, and like, I mean, that's got to be one of the greatest jobs in the world where you get to do something that people really value. You like the people that you're working with. You can show up in shorts and flip flops and bang out like 10 episodes in a sound booth over two right. days. Will, Will Arnett know? has the greatest job in the world, right? He has a studio in his home. 
And he mm-hmm. goes into it and does all of the voices for all of these shows and all of the commercials and all of the stuff that he does is hilarious. And then goes yeah. and plays golf. Like he had, he, uh, yeah. he, he has figured out a way to sound really good <laughs> on a microphone. Um, but the, I, I, I think about the news business in the same way, which is if you have something that rates, if you have something that works, do you know what the executives are going to say? Keep doing it, baby. Keep it, keep right. it going. Like it's, it's not rocket science and pro- producers and showrunners and news executives are all, all alike in this way, which is if you say, let me tell you how you can have 5 million viewers, but it also may crash and burn. Or do you want to have 2.2 million viewers and keep them every night, the same people? And they're right. going to choose the 2.2 every time because as uh, as we have seen, uh, audiences do not reward experimentation. Um, or usually, when we see it. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, I mean, And Glenn Beck was sort of an experiment with the 5 million. And, and with the built in was that it could flame out. It, it, it sure did. It. And I, I forget where I heard you talking about this, about ales and knowing mm-hmm. that Glenn Beck had to go. Right. I right. think you were talking with John about it. Um, but Roger Ailes, certainly, as I have said to you before, it is really too bad that he was such a gross person personally. Yeah. yeah. Because he knew about keeping the car on the road. Right. Like, OK, that's you're we're having fun here and we're running the numbers up with this Glenn Beck chalkboard stuff. And this is interesting, but we're going to need someplace to go home to later. And you got it. You have to. There is a way. And I believe this is true. And I hope that this is what happens at CNN. I am rooting for CNN in a really profound way that Chris Licht and CNN can figure out a way to make news uh, profitable and can make reporting mm-hmm. profitable. Because uh, I think and we see News Nation and there's other outfits out there that are trying to do it. It's it's hard. Right. Because the other thing is easy. Uh, hate and division is easy. Uh, thoughtful coverage, news, interesting ideas. That stuff is hard to sell to those that three million person audience. And I am really rooting for CNN. So I hope you guys kill it. Yeah. I mean, I hope um, that they internalize all the praise that they're getting. And I'm, and I'm a CNN contributor who has been on exactly once since I joined. Well, you were just ranting uh, about <laughs> Alan Hale the whole time. I don't know what you expected them to do. <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, I'm really hoping that they internalize all the praise and ratings and positive feedback they're getting for how good they are doing covering Ukraine. I mean, they're, they're, they're being their best selves. They're being what they're supposed to be. And, uh, you know, it would be nice if, you know, I don't want to sound like Bill Murray at the end of Scrooge talking about how we have to hold on to this feeling all year long for it, but (laughs) um it would be good um and then you know uh you know jake tapper can say god bless us god bless us everyone i do Um, i do think by the way the coverage in general of ukraine has been good and it's been good at fox it's been like for the people on the ground and uh including mm -hmm, those mm -hmm. who made the great sacrifice um the coverage has been good in in another way which is there has not been the kind of hyperventilating over determinalism that has that dominates domestic debate, right? Mm-hmm. Everything is going to be this way or everything. The the, the extremity in the discussions, uh, if it were applied to Ukraine, and in some cases it has been, but to say 
Putin is defeated and destroyed forever or uh, Ukraine will be crushed under. Instead, it's like, well, this is probably hard and complicated. I have seen an encouraging amount of humility uh, in the coverage of this. And I'm I'm more more please. Yeah, although the one thing, you know, like the one and I I think I talked about this with with Shadi Hamid on here, but. Like you do get a glimpse of the merits, you know, like the corporate media wants war yeah, thing yeah, yeah. is a little bit of a holdover from Thomas Nass cartoons, but, um, see the octopus the... over here is choking off Bela Russia, <laughs> but up here that tentacle represents the Balkans. And, um, but there was like a, there was like two weeks where serious, you know, interviewer after interviewer asking politicians and policymakers and generals, you know, given the news this morning, have you changed your mind about the no fly zone? And like, like you could, it made me put on a little bit of my sort of, you know, Marxist anti-corporate media hat was like, this is, or let me put it this way, my Randolph Bourne hat, um, where, you know, here, here they are banging the drums for, you know, trying to get the, trying to advance the story towards more war was the sort of the objective effect of those kinds of questions. And um, I'm very sympathetic to the idea of a no fly zone. If it could be done without us like going to war with Russia, but like it was, it was, it was like they were talking to Joe Manchin about, have you changed your mind on the film? That was exactly the perfect uh, uh, analogy. But I, I think that that is not as much about, corporate warmongering as it is about and there's some there there is a journalist like stuff to cover and wars are really stuff to cover right um there there has not been a lot of uh news out part of the reason you haven't been on cnn more is cnn knows what to program every day right everybody knows what it's the producers don't wake up and say what are how are we going to make a living today no they're like okay keep it going so there right. is a, there is a always a preference for conflict in action. This is certainly true, but I also think that what you talk about is is groupthink. If the question poorly understood by the askers, uh, but that was the received wisdom that this is what it is that it's build back. Is it build back better? Uh, is it a no fly zone? Is it whatever? Right? Is it purple potatoes? What like it becomes the question, and then that's all anybody wants to talk about, and they just keep asking the question over and over again, even though. Right. And I, I guess it's it's ignorance and groupthink most of all. All right. I, I know you have to get out of here soon, but um, um, just out of curiosity, do you do you have strong opinions about the the the, the Ginny Thomas? text message you know i i think our colleague adam white uh was quite good on that question uh i i assume i also got an omelet that he did not so in that case also he's on the list of people whose omelet i ate um but here's the here's the pro you know we talked about bubbles before uh clarence and jenny thomas have have been in a really thick bubble for a long time with uh, once uh, Ketanji uh, Brown-Jackson is on the court, the delta between Clarence Thomas and the next youngest or the next uh, uh, member of longest service will be like 15 years or something. 
right? So mm-hmm. he is of a totally different generation than the rest of the court. Uh, he has been on, he's the only one who's been on the court for more than 20 years. And I forget, is it 34 years or something that he has been on the court and he has seen his friends come and go and he has seen all of that change. And he has also been a Fabergé egg for the right. Uh, Clarence Mm -hmm. Thomas, a learned, brilliant man who was victimized by a smear campaign. Speaking of Joe Biden, uh, who was victimized by a smear campaign, he overcame it. And it has special power because for Republicans, he has been an answer to allegations of racism. Oh, yeah. Well, what about that? And what about what you did to him? Uh, And uh, we recently saw at the Washington Post, the Washington Post issued one of the great corrections of the year so far, which was when they described Clarence Thomas as often siding with white conservatives. And then the <laughs> editor was like, actually, what we meant was other. It was like, no, what you meant was white conservatives. That's what mm-hmm. you meant. You said yeah. you that was a Kinsley gaffe. Um, yeah. I think because of the Fabergé egg status and and all of the success that his wife has experienced inside that maggot now now nationalist MAGA wing of the party, um, I think they maybe got a little lost. I think maybe she got a little lost in the sauce. Uh, I think maybe she lost perspective. Um, well, oh, how about this? Clearly, the texts indicate that she had lost perspective. Yeah, um, yeah. and. That's the thing where you got to have accountability, where you got to have people that can say, hey, this is not good. What Ginny Thomas was doing uh, 20 years ago, maybe is great, maybe is fine, maybe is perfect. But at a certain point, if your spouse is on the Supreme, somebody once asked, uh, somebody on the right said, well, would they say this about a somebody's husband? And I said, yes, of course I would say that. <laughs> If it was a if it was a female justice, if Amy Coney yeah. Barrett's husband was texting Mark Meadows to steal the election, to urgently please steal the election, I would definitely say that was dumb. And it's not a gender question; it's none of that stuff. So I, I think there, I think, I think, th- I think that's what I think. Yeah, no, I mean that's fair. I mean, I, I think the, I mean, first of all, I do think there's a bit of an abuse of the investigative process going on here because the leaking of yes. this stuff the only part that's actually relevant is what mark meadows is that's saying right. and and mark meadows is not a reliable narrator of his own story even in private conversations but yes, um exactly it's it's um but it's turned into this let's just embarrass yep. the thomas they're making thing, and, and, and they're making a serious mistake in so doing I, I really think so. You know, like I was going through Google News looking for stories about this to find the the text of the the text of the text, and the garbage I had to go through about how he's going to be impeached yeah, yeah, and blah yeah. blah blah blah, and how, and like you know, there you'll hear a lot of people uncritically say that Thomas voted to conceal these texts, yep. um, which is just not, not true. true. The the thing he was voting on had nothing to do with this. And his this dissent, as you pointed out, with Adam White would would have, he would have known that he was dissenting. Uh, and that right. that that his vote would have no uh, effect on the outcome and all that, right? So, um, but even you, mm-hmm. who's you know perspicacious—I can't say that word. Perspicacious. Uh, Paris. Say it again. Perspicacious. Perspicacity. Perspicacious. Perspicacity um, knows no mm-hmm. bounds. Uh, you know, you said if the situation was reversed and it was a husband talking about stealing the election. That's sort of the problem, right? Is that the mens rea, as the fancy lawyer mm-hmm, people mm-hmm, with belts mm-hmm. likes to say, um, 
is she thought the Democrats were stealing. Yes, the of course. Now, I think she's completely wrong. Right. I think she's she was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs in those texts. The idea that like she thought that Rudy Giuliani was just killing it at the Four Seasons landscaping exactly. press conference is a sign that I mean, like talk about like you are so deep in the bunker, yeah. you could be. There could be the bombing of Dresden above you, and you could still successfully play the game operation yes. without lighting up the page. Exactly. Nose. And That's um, what I mean about that bubble gets real, real thick in there, concretized. Yes. But the thing is, is the way people need to pick a lane, right. right? I mean, it's sort of like is is Biden non compass mentis or is he an evil villain? Is was Donald Trump a moron or was he Hitler? Right. You can't you can't do both. Similarly, you can't say that like I. I as I put it in the Jeep, I firmly believe that Roger Stone was trying to steal For an election because sure. he has no morals. He, and he knew it. I think and he knew it. Yeah. If you snapped open Roger Stone like a pea pod, nothing but black sulfuric <laughs> ooze would pour out. And, um, and for some reason, old bottles of Dracar Noir Cologne. I don't know why. Also that. <laughs> um, and, um, and same thing with with Steve Bannon. I mean, I th I'm pretty sure that Steve Bannon has hooves and bat. That's why he wears all the layers. Um, but, um, but Jenny Thomas. If, if you take the plain reading of those texts, she, she wasn't one of the dupers. Was she was yes, duped. It's embarrassing. Right. It's it, the, 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 so there's a couple ways. There, there's the, the, wor the worst way that people have dealt with the, the theft of the, the Trump's attempted theft is to say, well, actually, the election was rigged. Because of Facebook, because the actually the election was rigged because Twitter suppressed Hunter Bi the story of Hunter Biden's laptop, which was everywhere, which got more right. coverage because of Twitter uh, spiking the New York Post story than if it had just come out in the New York Post. Um, but they buy it. They, they take this narrative and they say, well, actually, so th those are that's the worst because that's knowing you're like, okay, but I can figure out a place to stand here where the things I'm saying aren't actually crazy. But then you have the victims. And Jenny Thomas very obviously was a victim of this, you know, flummery, this, you know, these horse apples. And, and that's been right. the challenge going through this whole thing, which is figuring. And I think Trump is an interesting case because he is both a duper and duped. He is, he is both at the same time. He is, he knows yeah, yeah. he's lying. He knows he lost on some level, but also on some level, he thinks maybe he didn't, right? Like his ego, his yeah. ego needs that to be true. And I do want to say one other thing about the January 6th committee, which is if I were, if I were Thompson, I would say, here's the deal, fellow Democrats, next leak that we get, we are going to go to extraordinary security measures on this. We're going to go to thumbprint, like you can't take the documents mm -hmm. out. We're going to go to NATSEC, super sealed off. Because much as we saw with the Mueller investigation, the leaks actually undercut. If if the political goal, right. uh, it, let, let's let's uh, attribute the worst motives to the Democrats here and say that they want to deliver a solar plexus punch to Republicans on the eve of the 2022 midterms. If that were if th if that's all it was, and I don't think that's all it is, but if that was all it was, the leaks are still a bad idea because it diminishes the final effect. It would be much right. better if they could keep their mouths shut and their fingers off their iPhones for long enough to get to the point where you get just and to use the Mueller example. If you were to take the Mueller report and show it to America 
at the outset of Mueller's investigation. We know the famous story uh, about Bill Clinton in the dress. They had the dress, but mm-hmm. didn't. They were like, oh, we're going to we're going to hold on to this one. When, of course, the reality, they should have just said, actually, we have the dress. You did it. Please resign. But if you would have shown the Mueller report to America at the outset, not at the end, it would have been far more damaging to Donald Trump. But by the time you got to the end of the process, it had been so leaked and exaggerated and misstated that it was like, oh, okay, well, whatever. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. All right, my friend, I promise to get you out by uh, one minute from now. And um, uh, it it is always it is always my privilege to be have glass broken for me because things that you keep under glass are either delicious like pheasants or necessary like fire hoses. So that's good. Yes, although you have not seen the full extent of of my collection (laughs) (laughs) jar jars with heads in them in your basement um professor starwalt always grand to have you um much appreciated and obviously we'll have you back soon um and at some point i got to fill you in we are going to have a 500th episode extravaganza well, I was just about to say, we and AB and I were talking about this. We need a gold jacket jam. We need like a a, a, a very special episode uh, with the gold jacket crew where we really where we let people in on the behind the scenes of the magic. We are working on it. Um, stay tuned. And, um, you know, it, it takes it takes a while to um, get all of the. Uh, pain collars and tracking things for the <laughs> for the intern hunt that we're going to do but yeah, it's yeah, going to yeah. be great. I like it. Thank you sir. All right, uh Dr. Starwalt has left the studio and um uh always great to have him on. Thank him for coming on. I thank him for coming on. And um um we've already rebooked uh the Fukuyama episode which I'm very much looking forward to. Uh I I there are very few uh living public intellectuals that i've gotten more out of than um than um, fukuyama and uh um it should be interesting and i'm looking forward to actually reading the whole book um but that's all for another day uh we are going to do later today the drive time podcast thing so we got to figure out what the hell to talk about for that um and uh uh, I was serious about the 500th episode uh, uh, stuff. It's gonna be it's it's gonna be lit, as the kids say. Um, and with that, I'll see you next time. Nine. This is a podcast. Alan Hale could not do better. Alan Hale could not do better because he's dead. Why are you all uh, Orville Redenbachered? I can't help it if I'm pretty, Jonah Goldberg. Is there something going on at AI? I'm just giving the people. Yeah, me. (laughs) I'm what's going on at AI. This is gold.